0: This is an ABC podcast.
1: Micro stresses. They're just a normal part of the day, right? From when you wake up and check your messages, listen to the news, wrangle your kids, jostle your way to work and then deal with that colleague, you're stressed without anything major actually happening. Hello. Hello. I'm Lisa Leong, and on This Working Life, we're revisiting our episode on how micro-stress affects us and what we can do about it. Rob Cross is a professor at Babson College, which teaches entrepreneurship. His latest book, The Micro-Stress Effect, How Little Things Pile Up and Create Big Problems and What to Do About It, Rob says that to avoid a downward spiral, we need to recognise our sources of stress and act on the ones we're able to change how does something like micro stress relate to conventional forms of stress that we might know about
0: the convention is, oh, it's it's a nasty boss, right, or it's a demanding client, or it's one big thing. And I think that's a fallacy, personally, of how our minds work. You know, I think our minds can, we can't physically, cognitively remember all the myriad interactions that are causing us small doses of stress. So we remember the one argument we had with a colleague, or we remember the one, you know, big moment, and we miss the 30 small moments that are sensing misalignment with a colleague, you know, that you know you're going to have to solve that or seeing a team member that needs to be coached uh, for the third time. It's really in the nature of the smaller moments and the velocity and volume of them today.
1: So tell me about your relationship with microstress. Why did you decide to go down into this path of research, Rob?
0: I just kind of pivoted in certain ways in some of these interviews. I would be talking to people not about the role of relationships and work performance, but in well-being. And trying to understand um, times in people's lives when they were thriving or really physically becoming more healthy. And I stopped many of the interviews early on and I would ask them, well, what got you trapped? You know, what got you stuck? And it just became very profound to me that nobody could answer. You'd have these really vibrant interviews of people talking about these positive points in their lives, but then they couldn't really quite say how they got trapped, you know. and it would always be some variant of just life, I guess. And that really started me thinking about, well, what are all these small moments that are under our radar screen that seem to accumulate around us today, uh, especially because they're coming through relationships in this hyper-connected world? And really trying to understand that, you know, how and where micro stress was happening. That was the way the research side of it, you know, came about. And I'm happy to also tell you a little bit about my own side of it, too, if that's helpful. Oh,
1: I'd love you to share a story about your own relationship with microstress.
0: Yeah. I mean, for me, I could see running a, a consortium the way that I do. Um, there's a lot of people that are always, you know, looking for small bits of, of me in different ways. Actually, some of these stresses coming at you through... People you love and care about, your children, you know, for example, a couple of years ago where I was physically at my least healthy um, that I'd been, and it was a product of uh, really getting absorbed in the same way that I'd been talking with people I interviewed. You're never, ever, ever today, and I believe going forward, going to be able to confront every one of these micro stresses. You know, there's too many of them. There's no way the world's going to revert back to being less connected. The strategies really need to be to deal with a couple directly and kind of remove them from your life, but then also find ways to create more dimensionality in your life, right? And what I can find with the happier people is that they tend to have at least two and usually three groups they're an authentic part of. For me, it was cycling, uh, tennis, and a book club that I kind of leaned into in very specific ways. And suddenly I'm doing 100, 120, 150 miles with a bunch of old guys. But what that does is that activity, um, suddenly everybody's passionate about cycling, right? Or whatever that is. It could be music, art, poetry. It doesn't really matter. But you're suddenly circulating with people that are coming at the world from very different places. You know, my very close friends are mailman, an IT executive, a lawyer, and they see the world differently. And, and you get into to these kind of authentic connections in ways that really help to ameliorate the stress. We have a tremendous depth in network analytics to quantitatively you know, model what are the kinds of connections that matter for people to feel better today, to have a greater sense of well-being, and what are they getting through those connections?
1: What is network uh, analytics for people who don't know and how does it relate to areas like psychology? (laughs) I'm sorry, I'm spinning
0: into acronyms here, yeah. (laughs) So for me, network analysis is an approach that's been around in in social psychology and uh, sociology, you know, family uh, dynamics, other fields that's just mapping the pattern of interactions uh, amongst people within and outside of groups. We would see the patterns of connectivity, understand what people were getting from each other, And then relate that to the people that were really exemplars. So they were the people that were performing well, but they were also just thriving in their lives. You know, whereas most people were performing well and burning out, (laughs) we found this small subset that was kind of really thriving on both fronts. And that's who I interviewed, 600 of those people.
1: So Rob and his colleagues deduced that the people maintaining and prioritising their social connections, often through shared activities, were the ones who were less stressed.
0: If you look at almost every study that's out there that's looking at people that are happier in their lives and by happy, I don't mean giddy, you know, like we're grinning on the way into the office. I mean, you're just content in kind of how you're experiencing your life. And what we can see, you know, in either those studies or if you look at the longevity studies, like what allows people to live longer is that authentic relationships are always A, if not the most significant determinant of happier people, people that live longer? What are the positive aspects of these connections, right? What are the ways that people lean into them in small moments that create dimensionality, create a sense of purpose and resilience? And then also, what are the negative? I mean, think about that. Um, We actually know statistically from social psychology that the negative relationships have somewhere between two and five times the impact of the positive. Yet there's very little efforts that organizations are making to help people shape those negative interactions. They'll do mindfulness, they'll do meditation, they'll do things that help people persist, but they're not going in and saying, here's how you can adapt how these micro stressors are affecting you. And so I got pretty excited about that.
1: story that illustrates micro stresses at work.
0: One that troubled me a lot would be those scenarios where people spent, you know, three, five, eight years really working hard in a certain profession, certain discipline, and had one of those wake up moments where they realized that they had slowly allowed all the interactions from work to consume their lives. And they'd given up some of the things that had kept them whole to begin with. And so, you know, one of the stories was an executive, software executive pulling into his driveway. He had a day free come out of the blue, came home and thought, oh my gosh, I've got a day free to go do something because my flight was canceled. He walks into his house, his kids are ignoring him, right? They're off on their own thing. His wife has got a very busy schedule already planned with her day. He realizes that he's given up guitar and and tennis, the things that kept him busy before. And so, one of the ways, when I think about micro stress and how it's happening, it's these slow, slow movements over time um, that we kind of lean into and and let ourselves get pulled out of the things that are keeping us healthy, right? And so, that is one of the reasons we're experiencing greater aspects of stress today is because we've fallen out of the groups that kind of keep us a little bit healthier. You know, you roll out of bed, the first thing you do is you're checking your phone or you're working through some texts, and you've got two or three things that have happened across different time zones that are suddenly driving you work. Uh, one of them is likely change the nature of what you have to do for the day and that causes stress for you. And that's just in the first 10 minutes, right, of waking up. And then you magnify that by, you know, the interactions that you're having where you, you know, start to get small misses and performance from teammates. So one of the drivers of micro stress, we call it. It's not the big misses that kill us, the colleagues that just don't come through. It's the fact that if you are on, for example, a project, right? A task force and the four other people there and they just show up each 95% done, right? So they're almost there to what you agreed to almost. And they all have good reasons, right? Somebody didn't understand. Somebody had a sick child. Somebody's boss pulled them in a different direction. All of it makes sense. And you're not going to get in their face. You're not going to argue with it. But the problem is, and the way that our work is so interdependent today is four misses times five percent each means twenty percent for you, and so we're stuck, right, in those really small moments of do we heroically, you know, just work a little bit deeper into the night and solve the problem, uh, or do we address those individuals, right, and or do we underdeliver, right, and all of that creates stress in, in one form or the other. Most of us choose to work harder. And then the problem is we've irritated other people that are going to cause us micro stress, like our family, because we're missing that. And unfortunately, in that specific instance, we've taught those people that 5% is good enough, miss maybe 10% next time. I really believe not because people are nefarious, but we're also overwhelmed today, right? that people are making decisions on uh, what balls to drop, not how do I excel. And so you see that running through the day and we would hear this over and over again.
1: So Rob's saying instead of figuring out where these micro stresses are coming in and wrecking quiet havoc with our day, we're just randomly picking tasks and responsibilities to drop.
0: And they sit kind of beneath our level of awareness to some degree, but we end the day exhausted and can't quite put a finger, you know, on, on what just happened anymore.
1: And then in your research and working with different organisations, you found three main categories of micro stresses. Can you please describe these?
0: One uh, category really are what I call drains to capacity, right? And so these are the interactions that we have that just tend to decrease our ability to get done what we have to get done, whether whether that's work-related outcomes or for many of us, we've spun our role as provider and, and parent up to the incredible expectations that is also a component right of any kind of slight deviations a child comes home with what uh, one of the people in my interviews called parent homework right over the weekend so it's one of those assignments that there's no possible way that that child can do on their own and you lose eight hours chasing down poster board and everything else that's needed
1: and what's the second category of micro stress
0: uh ones that we talk about in terms of emotional impact of interactions certainly confrontational conversations have a, a, oftentimes a disproportionate impact we worry about things before during and after the interactions we replay them sometimes we drag others into our drama of, did i handle this well and so for some of us you know they have disproportionate effect because of, of how we think about it the one that surprised me a tremendous amount was uh secondhand stress and the degree to which People absorb stress uh, from others, that concern for loved ones, right? That's not even a negative interaction, right? It's, it's concern for the well-being of others. But because it's coming through relationships, these are the interactions that are coming at us through connections, the impact's really magnified.
1: So the categories of micro-stress Rob has laid out so far are stresses that reduce your capacity and emotional impacts.
0: Number three for me was a little bit more subtle, and it was this value misalignment category. So when you're being pushed in ways that force you to be interacting in ways that are just slowly removing you from who you wanted to be. So when you make a move to a different job, uh, oftentimes people struggle quite a bit more than they think they will. And it's not because the skills aren't the same. It's because the way they rely on the interactions around them for a lot more than they think for validation, for, you know, emphasis on what's important in a situation. Things like, you know, being pushed to pursue revenue goals that were forcing you to sell more than you might believe in. Right, or in hospital settings, right, pushing to process patients at a pace that you don't necessarily think is the reason that you got into medicine. We tend to make all these slight adjustments to who we are over time because we're committed to providing for our families, we're committed to succeeding in our career, and it oftentimes results in these wake up moments that I was describing earlier. Right, that person that drove into his garage and wondered, How did I get here? How is it that I gave away? Kind of all these things that matter to me at some point, I've become somebody I didn't intend to be, tends to happen in those kind of, you know, micro stress moments that accumulate.
1: So, really, these micro stresses are relational.
0: I think that's one of the most important things, you know, is that people will say um, it's it's just bad news, right? It's social media. Well, that's going on for sure. But really what I'm talking about here is, again, that these things are coming at us through connections and that magnifies the impact of it. And it's all the channels, right, that people have access to us now. It's the social media platforms, it's email, it's video, it's the Slack channels where we've got 18 different channels for what we're trying to get done in a given context, Um, All these create, you know, opportunities, but they also create small moments of potential stress.
1: And so how do our different relationships play into this?
0: I think the most effective thing we've seen is, number one, be aware on the individual basis if it is misalignment, for example, of of objectives. And that's happening a tremendous amount in today's world of work where, you know, every company is looking for cross-functional teams, for more agile ways of working. And people come into a room and they agree and then they go off and pull in slightly different directions, you know, where their functions want them to, where their incentives, you know, and uh, kind of encourage them to lean into. And so if that's hitting you, you know, you need to focus on it and take corrective action.
1: So Rob's categorised these stresses into three buckets. Micro-stresses that drain your personal capacity, that's the time and energy you have available to handle life's demands. Micro-stresses that deplete your emotional reserves and micro-stresses that challenge your identity and values.
0: What I ask people to do is go through that and think about the micro stress and then the source of it. You know, where is it being generated from your boss, a client, your team, a child, another loved one, um, and really reflect on three ideas. Then, You know, one is where two or three of these that are they're so systematic that you should do something about it. Right. You should address the interactions. You should shape what's happening in that uh, interaction. Then I have them go through the same table again, and this shocks people. But I'll say, now tell me two or three you're causing, (laughs) not just what you're experiencing and how hard life is for you, but what are you doing for others? Uh, And how are you creating this for others? And you always get this shocked look on on people's face, you know, because suddenly they're like, oh, I hadn't thought about that. You know, I may be causing it. But the interesting thing with micro stressors, too, is the stress you cause often boomerangs back to you in a different form, right? So if you cause enough stress, that your employee leaves that's going to come back to you in all sorts of additional work in different ways if you cause enough stress for your child right that that they're distancing themselves from you that comes back to you in in a different form of stress like wondering why you're getting alienated
1: rob just in a practical sense given that micro stresses are kind of everywhere as you've described them how do we actually assess them Are you saying we'd kind of do an audit? Am I sort of making a note every time I feel like (laughs) that's going to double my time at work, I think?
0: (laughs) So not so much an audit, but it does start to open your eyes. You know, you start to say, huh. You know what I mean, and and am I contributing to this, right? The way that I'm leaning into this, or uh, or overdoing it. So what we've seen be really successful for people is this idea of, you know, maybe not a day to day audit, but just a systematic, you know, once a month, where are the ones coming at me that I can adapt, I can adjust either how we're interacting, I can increase the time duration between interactions. There's a lot of ways you can actually ameliorate it. But then your point that I love is there's there's so much of this. Right, it's, we are in a sea of it because we've created this interconnected world, and there's great things about it, but there's negative too. Most people have had the um, the experience in their lives of uh, you know going along grumbling about something, then something really traumatic happens, and you turn around and everything that just mattered greatly to you thirty seconds ago suddenly doesn't matter. And I, I think that's what these ten percenters do; these happy people do is they're living their life that way without the trauma.
1: Rob says there's become too much focus on the resilience that we're all supposed to protect ourselves with.
0: But if you ask 600 people how they get through a difficult stretch and not what they did but how they fell back on others, right? how they relied on others around them, there's eight really predictable things we turned to others for, for empathy, for perspective, for a path forward, to laugh at the absurdity of our situation. And again, the people that, that had those connections in their lives and knew how to tap into them, kind of new. It's laughter that I need right here. Uh, It's empathy here. They did better. They make it make it through better.
1: You're listening to This Working Life. I'm Lisa Leong and we're looking at micro stresses and how to rise above them. Rob Cross is a professor at Babson College and has researched how to identify the small things in life that are tripping you up and the big picture solutions to change the way you relate to life let's um, go through that process of the assessment. So we have a table and we're sort of bringing awareness to our micro stresses. How do you figure out which ones are really causing the most problems and to focus on those, maybe to correct them or change your attitude around them?
0: So it's a table, like you said, where the left-hand side is the 14 microstresses, and then across the top is the source of them. Occasionally, what we're finding that is a lot of fun is if I can get couples to do this together. So don't just do it yourself, but take it home you know, to your, your significant other. And then not just looking at the stressors, but then saying, okay, how do we create that dimensionality in our lives? And the more that you set those goals with others that you're interdependent with, then the less you're pulled out of them. You would see you know, couples kind of focus in on playing tennis together. Then suddenly there weren't those little slight, oh, you're going tennis again. You know what I mean? It was a, a mutually reinforcing system. But the way they did it was typically not through the big things. So they tended not to say, I'm going to go sail the ocean. Rather, what I could see is that they were much more likely to live small moments more richly in connection with others. And so they were, had a much greater clarity on what kind of mattered to them in terms of how they wanted to be focusing their time professionally and personally. And they were much more intentional about small moments.
1: So are you saying that by going through this process of looking at our micro stresses that it somehow even dissipates the energy of them because they kind of lose their power?
0: So I think part of what we're trying to get people to do is see where are these happening to you and then develop a strategy, right? So if it's if it's your boss is shifting priorities on you constantly. You know, develop a strategy against that to say, okay, do you understand when you adapt these things at the pace you're doing it? Here's the way it's rolling out. How do I anticipate your needs um, so that this isn't happening? There's a piece of that that's really being direct and saying, okay, I'm going to deal with some of these micro stresses that are hitting me. There is a piece of this that you just go through and say, this is life today. And I've got to live in a way that's going to pull me above it to some degree. One of my favorite interviews and in the the story was, um, very successful Silicon Valley executive. She was in her probably mid forties at the time that I was interviewing her and she had been a, a tremendous runner, right? A college athlete and had, had run and been very successful and then persisted in running as, you know, what she did. And as we got into the interview, she said, well, running's really important to me because it's a piece of my identity, right? And it's actually allows me to push back on work because, you know, I make time for the running versus." Um, five more emails or whatever it is that's inconsequential in in her life. But she said, I had a really stark wake up moment about four or five years ago where I realized that every single year I'd been running 10Ks or marathons. If I didn't get a personal best, it was a bad year. Her definition of how running mattered to her was really society's definition of success, right? And society is saying this number, this speed, whatever it is, is the, the thing you shouldn't be shooting for. And she woke up and said, I don't care about that. I'm mid-40s. I'm very successful. What I really want to be doing is running with my daughter, her best friend, a parent, and then it evolved into a community you know, group of people running. And so she wasn't hitting the same paces as before. But what she had done, and I think this is really important, is she'd taken the same activity she was doing and then pivoted it and said, how do I do this same thing in a way that's going to pull me into some authentic connections? And it had a huge difference in her life because she had more quality relationships in terms of friendships, a better relationship with her child, doing the same thing, right? It wasn't kind of hiking the Himalayas or writing a concerto. It was looking for those small moments I'm already doing and saying, how do I pivot this in a way that'll pull me into more meaningful interactions?
1: And could it be said that the relational micro-stresses lead to an antidote of positive connection? Is that how this might be actually working?
0: I think that's definitely the 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 strategy. I think that's the most important strategy. It's what are you experiencing, how do you deal with some of you can, it's what are you causing, how do you stop doing that because it boomerangs on you. I think by far the most important is how do you live life in a way that rises above. We've fallen out of the different groups that kept us whole through the social distancing, through everything else. And a lot of people aren't making their way back in. So we've experience this simultaneous effect where the micro stresses have risen right we're in this always on state we're connecting with people constantly we move from eight one-hour meetings to 16 30-minute meetings each day so we're moving at a faster pace we have more to-do lists
1: and practically speaking if we find um, micro stress, which is pretty fundamental um, and chronic, uh, for example, if I am working and I have um, goals that rub up against my values. How do I set a strategy to deal with one of those critical micro stresses?
0: I mean, one is you go find a new context. And I don't think that actually is the right answer <laughs> because very infrequently do even these places that purport to be high values and everything else, do they really operate at the level they're saying?
1: Rob noticed that the participants he interviewed that were more effective all did this.
0: They would start looking... At their work and seeing how do I just shift a couple things here? That's going to fill me up a little bit. It may not solve everything, right? But I can just shift maybe the target clients I'm working for, working with, to go for nonprofit sector for a little bit of my portfolio.
1: And Rob, if you had a, a final message about micro stresses at work, what would you say?
0: One is um, take it seriously and look, you know, carefully for small moments to reduce the stress have at least two and usually three groups outside of work.
1: Thank you so much, Rob. Thank you, Lisa. That was Rob Cross. His new book, The Micro Stress Effect, How Little Things Pile Up and Create Big Problems and What to Do About It, is out now through Harvard Business Review Press. You can check out our earlier episode we recorded with Rob called Warning Collaboration Overload. Search for it on the ABC Listen app. We made this episode on the unceded lands of the Gadigal and Wurundjeri people. Special thanks to our producer, Sarah Allerley, and sound engineer, Brendan O'Neill. I'm Lisa Leong, and until next time, work it, baby.
0: You've been listening to an ABC podcast.